0: Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion, please God, stops here. Uh, when I used to have a daily program on VMPR, Happy Hour, if you were around back then, I always offered a reflection on Fridays for the upcoming mass readings uh, in the extraordinary form. Now, since starting No Nonsense Catholic back in, what, 2020, I guess. Uh, which is just weekly, it's been my custom to open the program with uh, a reflection from the gospel or the readings of the previous Sunday, most often the traditional calendar, but sometimes I would use the gospel or the readings from the Novus Ordo Mise. Uh, Last Wednesday, I spoke about the Holy Spirit, and that was in anticipation of last Sunday's Feast of Pentecost. And so I have decided to continue in that vein by instituting a new policy of looking at the Uh, readings, uh, gospel or readings of the upcoming Sunday. And so on the program today, we're going to look at the readings for Trinity Sunday, uh, which includes the Great Commission. And that affords us the opportunity to explore the role that you and I should play in the work of evangelization as lay people. Also, Christ commands the apostles to teach all nations whatsoever I have commanded you. And so that's a natural opening for a discussion of something that's also near and dear to my heart, and that is tradition. Tradition, uh, particularly with a capital T, so uh, that which is not contained uh, in the Holy Scripture but is contained in the deposit of faith. And so uh, we're going to have all of that. Plus, we're going to do a, a medieval mentality segment. Last, uh, well, Yesterday was the Feast of St. Joan of Arc, May the 30th. And so we're going to take uh, some time to talk about the wonderful true story of St. Joan of Arc. All that and more coming up on today's No-Nonsense Catholic. But to begin, the epistle for next Sunday, this is a Trinity Sunday in the extraordinary form, is taken from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How inscrutable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him anything in order to receive something in return? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Uh, it's just so beautiful. I mean, it's a it's a, an awe-inspiring passage of scripture. And It's St. Paul, I mean, to put it in the context, having arrived at this juncture where where mankind has been redeemed and from henceforth will have the opportunity to be reunited uh, in the salvation of God, Paul can't refrain from just, you know, overflowing in adoration and and admiration, uh, especially of the unfathomable, as he calls it, wisdom and love of God, by which God first permitted both the Jews and the Gentiles to fall into unbelief, so that he might have mercy on us all, and and make us realize that all um, are are justified, not through their own merits, but only through his grace. And in the liturgy of the Trinity Sunday, the church uses these words uh, to express her reverence and admiration for the greatness of the mystery of the blessed Trinity. Even though we cannot fully comprehend this mystery, (laughs) No one of sound mind uh, uh, will hesitate to believe it if they stop and consider a few things. Number one, uh, that it's plainly revealed by God. And to have God testify to a truth is itself the best motive for belief, right? Because God can neither deceive nor be deceived. And secondly, just as the infinite God uh, cannot be comprehended by the finite human mind, he can also choose to reveal things that we cannot fully understand. And finally, consider the fact that there are many things in man himself and in nature which we acknowledge as true, but cannot fully comprehend. Our Catholic faith assures us that uh, we shall one day behold face to face the infinite God whose image is now only dimly reflected in the mirror of nature. So we add the virtue of hope to the virtue of faith. And as uh, Father Goffin put it in his classic commentary, If true and sincere love be be based upon these two, that is, faith and hope, then our understanding and heart will have abundant consolation in regard to this great mystery. And that's no nonsense. All right, now for the Gospel for Trinity Sunday from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus approached them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So before his ascension, uh, when our Lord left this world, he handed over to the apostles his threefold office. Uh, Number one, the office, which is to say the right and the duty of teaching the Christian faith. Go, he says, and teach all nations. Number two is the priestly office. That's the right and duty of sanctifying souls via the Christian sacraments, baptizing them, he says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And number three, the pastoral office or the right and duty of guiding and maintaining the faithful uh, in the observance of the commandments. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So our Lord didn't commit this threefold uh, office just to the apostles, but also to their successors. And this is this is plainly inferred not only from the words "Go, teach all nations," but "I'll be with you all days, even to the end of the world." I mean, the eleven apostles themselves uh, could not have taught all nations, nor were they to live until the end of the world. So clearly, um, their office was to continue. And it was in their successors, the bishops of the Catholic Church. And so the priestly, prophetic, and royal offices of Christ must continue in the church until the end of time, because he said so. Uh, Also, this, this ruling power given to the church is divine. And that's why it is not subject to any civil or earthly power. In other words, within her own sphere, the Catholic Church is supreme and independent also we see that the church of christ must necessarily be catholic or universal as people always insist you know our lord said all nations were to be received into the church by baptism and instructed by her in the christian faith and so the church of christ therefore must be firstly universal in place so not a not a national church but a universal church uh, secondly uh, seeing that she was to be protected by her founder, you know, for to last all days to the end of the world, she must be equally Catholic as to duration. See, um, being upheld by our Lord through all ages, there is there is no time uh, in, in history where she could completely fall away or, or decay. Because if she did, then our Lord would not be fulfilling his promise to be always with her. You know, all of our separated brethren, all the Protestant uh, uh, communities and, and the various offshoots, evangelicals, fundamentalists, and so on, um, they're all based on the, on the false idea that the Church of Christ at some point became apostate, that it fell irretrievably into error or corruption. Uh, but according to Christ's clear promise, that can never be. The Church can neither teach nor believe false or corrupt doctrine. And individual Catholics can, obviously, even clergy. I mean, Martin Luther, call your office. <laughs> but not the Church even if reduced to a remnant. The infallible authority of the church is a fundamental Christian dogma that is um, inseparably connected to the divinity of Christ. You know, to deny one is to deny deny the other. Finally, this Sunday is called Trinity Sunday because uh, the mystery of the Blessed Trinity is most expressly laid down in the words which Jesus says uh, holy baptism is to be administered. And although the three divine persons are enumerated, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet it is in their name, not in their names, that baptism is to be administered. The word name used in the singular to identify the, uh, the being to whom it applies is one God, though in three divine persons. All right. Um, the Gospel for Trinity Sunday also includes the Great Commission. To make disciples of all nations. So it's not surprisingly, uh, then, that the Holy Bible, the tradition of the Church, Second Vatican Council, uh, a string of popes as long as your arm, and, and saints and doctors of the Church all agree that it's the Church's job, it's their duty to evangelize. But in the words of Venerable Pius XII, lay believers are in the front line of Church life. For them, the Church is the animating principle of human society. Therefore, they in particular ought to have an ever clearer consciousness not only of belonging to the church, but of being the church. And I would point out, this is, this is a pre-Vatican II pope teaching on, on the, you know, the, the duty of, of lay people. And, and that sense of, of quote-unquote, being the church was certainly true in the early years of Christianity. Uh, believers had this awareness that it was their duty to share the gospel you know, the good news, not just the apostles or the bishops and priests who succeeded them. And by the Middle Ages in Europe, formerly known as Christendom, virtually, you know, virtually everybody was a baptized Christian. So social life, uh, everything really revolved around the faith and the church's yearly cycle of holy days. So by that point, evangelization, you know, for that civilization was something primarily done by missionaries who were sent uh, by the church to the peoples and places who had not yet heard about Jesus, but in our day, Pope John Paul II, especially Vatican II, uh, the other post-conciliar popes have all expressly called for a new evangelization, and so that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, you know, when we get back, you know, what's new about it today? We live in, in in a what is you know generally acknowledged as a post-Christian era, and and once again, as in the early days of the Church, all Christians are called to witness and share the gospel with an unbelieving and, let's face it, sometimes hostile culture. However, unlike them, we are also called to evangelize the baptized. So we're going to talk about that and lots more. We're going to talk about tradition of the church and later on talk about the truth about St. Joan of Arc. All that when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Warnold. Uh, great to have you along with us. As I was mentioning before the break, we're going to talk about uh, evangelization, uh, the Great Commission, and what is referred to as the New Evangelization, because unlike the Christians of old, uh, we are called upon not only to, baptize, or to evangelize the unbaptized, but the baptized as well. And that would include um, our separated brethren— uh, fallen away Catholics of you know, uh, of which there's no shortage, and, and even practicing Catholics, uh, who have been you know catechized at least to agree and a uh, degree, and uh, sacramentalized, right? Baptism, confirmed, they receive Holy the Communion, but who have never really been evangelized in the first place. You know, I, I read not long ago that a majority of Catholics don't. Uh, don't believe that they have a personal relationship with Jesus, and a significant number are not sure that such a thing is even possible. So we have lots of work to do, and and the question is where to begin. Uh, And and, what's necessary for this new evangelization? Well, Pope St. John Paul II said, the first requirement of the new evangelization is the actual witness of Christians who live by the gospel. In order to witness to Christ, it is necessary to encounter him for oneself, and foster a personal relationship with him through prayer, the Eucharist and confession, reading and reflection on God's word, the study of Christian doctrine, and service to others. And always, if it is authentic, this will be the Spirit's work, much more than our own, Unquote. So <clears throat> he actually said an awful lot in that couple of sentences. So let's uh, take a minute and unpack that. First, as, uh, as Terry and Jesse say, we evangelize when we walk the talk. Okay. In other words, the example of a good Christian life founded on a personal relationship with Jesus. A- and the hallmark of every personal relationship is communication. Now, uh, the sacraments are the way that God communicates his grace to us, and uh, he communicates his word to us through the scripture, and prayer is our primary way of communicating with him. You know, prayer, in the words of the Venerable Fulton Sheen, should be a dialogue, now, number two, uh, the Pope said, reading and reflection on God's word and to study Christian doctrine. He, uh, in John Paul's encyclical, As We Enter the New Millennium, which was written in 2001, he said, um, well, he actually laid out a seven-step plan for Catholic Christians in the 21st century, which including as, includes as one of its points uh, studying both the Bible and the catechism, which is a handy way of saying scripture and tradition. Uh, and as St. John Paul said, since lay people are at the forefront of the church's mission to evangelize all areas of human activity, they must be strong enough and sufficiently catechized to testify how the Christian faith constitutes the only valid response to the problems and hopes that life poses to every person and society. So, as he said, the only valid response, not a valid response, not one valid response among many, not even the preferred response, but the only valid response to the problems and hopes of life. And he said that our study of the Bible and the catechism must flow from a life of prayer. Uh, As a lay person, you can encounter the scriptures every day by going to Holy Mass and or praying the Liturgy of the Hours, which is communicating with the Father uh, through the Son in the Spirit, by actually praying the inspired words of the Holy Bible. Uh, and thirdly, Saint John Paul II said that our evangelization is, if if our evangelization is authentic, it will be the Spirit's work, more than our own. You know, it's well to remember that God does not command us to be successful; just faithful. And I've often told the story of a woman at a conference, who came up to me uh, all distraught. Because she had spent uh, countless hours, not to mention a small fortune, on uh, Catholic books and tapes of evangelization and apologetics, but had not succeeded in converting anyone. And she was particularly concerned about fallen away Catholics and her you know among her own friends and family. And I told her, you need to let yourself off the hook, because you and I are called to evangelize, that is, to share the good news. And as St. Peter said, uh, to always be prepared to give uh, to anyone who asks you a reason for your hope. So we're called to share and to give answers, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the converting. You know, Jesus himself in Mark six uh, eleven said, And if any will not welcome you and refuse to listen to you, leave them immediately and shake off the dust that is on your feet in testimony against them. Now, in Jesus' day, a pious Jew that was walking through a Gentile territory uh, would stop and shake the dust off their feet um, to show their separation from the pagan influences and practices. So for the disciples to shake the dust from their feet indiscriminately after perhaps leaving a Jewish town was a powerful sign that they wished to remain separate even from those among their own people who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And our Lord makes it clear that all who hear the gospel are responsible for what they do with it. Uh, The disciples were not to blame if the message was rejected, you know, so long as they had faithfully and carefully presented it and answered questions, as St. Peter directed, with gentleness and respect. And the point is that you and I likewise have a responsibility to share the good news with clarity and charity. But if we do so, we are not responsible when others reject Christ's message, and if our evangelization is successful, we have the Holy Spirit to thank, more than our own efforts. Um, you know, somebody once said that um, uh, that life is just one damn thing after another, and uh, that, that's that's not really true. Uh, history is not merely a random series of events, nor is it cyclical like the pagan philosophers thought, just going round and round and and never arriving anywhere. On the contrary, history is linear. History is moving toward a specific point, namely the return of the risen Christ uh, in glory to judge the living and the dead. That is why we evangelize. And that is why there is an urgency to evangelization that never goes away. Acts 1.3 says, After his passion, Jesus had presented himself alive to them by many proofs. He appeared to them during 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. After spending 40 days uh, with his disciples, Jesus returned to heaven while they watched. Then two white-robed angels appeared and proclaimed to them, this is verse 11, "'Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking up into the sky?' This Jesus who has been taken from you uh, into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. That is to say, bodily and visibly. You know, I once saw a a button that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. (laughs) And and it was meant to be funny, and actually it kind of is. But only because uh, there's some truth to it. We should be preparing for his return. Not by standing around looking up at the sky but by working to share the gospel so that others will be able to benefit from the great blessings that God has bestowed upon us. And, you know, the message of the gospel really comes into focus in what is probably the most well-known verse of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may attain eternal life. John 3.16, in that verse, God set the pattern of true love, which is the basis of all close personal relationships. When you dearly love someone, your love becomes self-giving. That is, you're uh, you're you're willing to freely give to the point of self-sacrifice. And to restore our relationship with God broken in the Garden of Eden, God himself paid dearly. Uh, the highest price he could pay, the, the life of his only begotten son, Jesus' sacrifice redeemed us all, meaning that uh, he paid the price for our sins so that he could offer us this new life in the Spirit. And when we evangelize, uh, that is, when we share the gospel with others, our love must be like Jesus' love. It needs to be self-sacrificing, ready to give up our own comfort and security so that others might join us in receiving God's saving grace. And we mustn't forget that uh, modern technology offers us new opportunities for evangelization. Sheed and Ward, Bishop Sheen, uh, back in the 1930s, started using radio as a means of evangelization. Uh, Pope John Paul II said, Our duty to bear witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus and his saving presence in our lives is as real and pressing as was the duty of the first disciples. We must tell the good news to all who are willing to listen. Direct personal proclamation, one person sharing the faith in the risen Lord with another, is essential. So are other traditional forms of spreading the word of God. But proclamation today must take place also in and through the media. And that, of course, includes social media. You know, uh, we, li- we live in a time when everybody virtually has access To media, everybody's carrying around a a movie camera in their pocket at all times, you know. And and we have access to to the internet. I'm I'm speaking to you, you know. It's being mediated through some form of technology. You might be listening on our smartphone app, or you might be listening on the website, or you might be uh, watching this on Rumble. Maybe uh, it's been picked up by another website or or a mom and pop radio station someplace. Media is just, uh, it has, we have unprecedented opportunities to do good with it. You know, it, the media itself is neutral. It's what we choose to do with it, which is good or bad. And, and John Paul II said, as apostles for the third millennium, your task is to preserve and keep alive the awareness of the presence of our Savior Jesus Christ, especially in the celebration of the Eucharist. And you must keep alive the memory of the words of life which he spoke the marvelous works of mercy and goodness which he performed. In the words of Roman 1.16, you must constantly remind the world of the power of the gospel to save. And that's no nonsense. Okay, you know, our our reading, the uh, Gospel for Trinity Sunday, actually gave me some jumping off points. And um, something occurred earlier this month, on the 9th of May. I think it actually... Uh, took place on the 30th of April, something like that, but the uh, remarks were only published on the 9th of May. Uh, and it's Pope Francis talking to his fellow Jesuits, and uh, and that he told them in a question and answer session that the reason that he implemented Traditionis Custodes, right, his 19, uh, 2021 motu proprio, restricting the celebration of the traditional Mass rather draconially, uh, he said because he did it because the allowances, quote unquote, Granted by his predecessors, were quote being used in an ideological way unquote. (laughs) You know, uh, I'm sorry. Having become Catholic has given me a much deeper appreciation of irony, and uh, you know, certainly no one has ever used the Novus Ordo in (laughs) an ideological way. Uh, But that's not all there is to it, right? Um, I happen to remember back in 2021, in September, when uh, 2021, when Pope Francis told the European bishops. To make the church beautiful and welcoming, we need together to look to the future, not to restore the past, which unfortunately is a fad. Restoring the past will kill us. It will kill everyone." Now, we're going to take a look at uh, our uh, Holy Father's rather melodramatic words and take an understanding of them within the context of the Gospel for Trinity Sunday. All that and more coming up when we return with more No Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, We were talking before the break about uh, some remarks made earlier this month by Pope Francis regarding his reasons uh, for restricting the traditional Latin Mass, And putting it in context of some rather melodramatic rhetoric that he employed back in 2021, uh, closer to the time when the moda proprio was first implemented, uh, in the cause of Catholic progressivism, uh, by idolizing the future and demonizing the past. Attachment to the past, he says, is dangerous. Trying to restore the past, quote, will kill everyone, unquote. Now, once again, the Pope's uh, somewhat overwrought remarks were aimed at Catholics attached to tradition, uh, including the young, uh, for whom he says that this uh, is not a genuine attachment, but merely a fad. Uh, But, you know, I'm afraid that his words misrepresent, uh, at best, a misunderstanding. And that's what we'll go with. I mean, at worst, it would be a straw man argument. Traditional Catholics are not trying to restore the past. Um, you know, trying to recover the past. Temporally speaking, the, the, the past is literally nothing. Each temporal, uh, or each present moment, I should say, quickly recedes into the past and can never be recovered. What traditional Catholics want to restore is precisely that, tradition, not the past. You know, because tradition is not dead. It's the continuing influence of those who have gone before us. Now, admittedly, traditions can be merely habitual, you know, Why do you do it that way? Well, we've always done it this way, right? But they can also be profoundly meaningful. But if we equate uh, what is good with what is new, then we're likely to consider what is old as obsolete. So uh, appreciating tradition involves an attitude um, of openness to the new, but without letting go of whatever is good and true and beautiful. So if I find goodness and truth and beauty in the works of those who have gone before me, then it's only right and proper, it's only natural that I would want to enjoy them in the present and preserve them uh, for the future. Progress, understood in, in you know, science or technology, has a specific temporal direction. But truth, beauty, and goodness don't. They, they, they have existed for a long time and will continue to. You know, therefore, it's foolish to reject tradition in the name of, quote-unquote, progress. Tradition's not a fad, nor is it mere nostalgia. Tradition consists of past things that are an active part of the present, that are relevant to our present life and therefore worthy of preservation. And where such traditions have been ignored or denied, uh, they're worthy of restoration. In fact, as I often say, the whole of Christianity is a restoration project. It's an attempt to restore the, re- uh, the relationship with the Father that was broken in the Garden of Eden, to restore all things in Christ. Uh, a traditional Catholic learns from the past, lives in the present, and looks to the future, uh, a future that both builds on tradition and breaks new ground. Now, when Catholics think of the tradition of the Church, generally speaking, uh, we mean the truths of divine revelation that have not been written down in Scripture. Hence, St. Paul says to the Thessalonians, Therefore, stand firm, brethren, and hold fast to the traditions that you have been taught, whether by word of mouth or by a letter of ours. Traditions, that is, the, the teachings contained in tradition, which are both oral and written. Uh, and Many reference not only that one, but to 2 Thessalonians 2.5, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, 1 Corinthians 11.2, etc. Uh, just as in the case with the rabbinic law, right, oral and written. So in a wide sense then, tradition actually embraces the whole teaching of the church, including the Bible, since it's only from the church that we have the Bible in the first place. In a stricter sense, uh, divine tradition is revealed, or rather the revealed, Pardon me, the revealed truths taught by Christ and his apostles, which were given exclusively by word of mouth and not through the, the gospels or the letters uh, in the Bible. Though these truths were subsequently written down by the fathers of the church. Sorry, I got a little uh, dry spot in my throat there. Hmm. Now, the inspired authors of scripture tell us that there's many things uh, delivered to the faithful by word of mouth. Second John 12, for example, says, I have much to write you, but I do not think it prudent to do so with paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and to talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. So John was well aware that some things are better spoken face to face than by letter. Or in a modern context, you might say uh, you might uh, make a phone call rather than uh, sending something in a text. Right? He hopes to personally visit with the church that he's uh, writing to. And among the many truths of tradition that are not explicit in the scripture are such things as the exact number of the sacraments, uh, which books belong in the Bible, uh, precisely how to baptize. I mean, we have the formula there in the Great Commission, uh, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But, but uh, how do you do that precisely? Immersion, pouring, sprinkling? Do you baptize infants? Right. These things are not explicitly in, in the Scripture, which is why different Christian communities have different traditions with a small t. <clears throat> the Sunday obligation, all of these things, and, and many others, are, they're present materially in the Scriptures, but not explicitly. And the truth is that several years passed before even the Gospels were written down, before these letters started to be written. And in the meantime, Christians had to depend entirely upon tradition, Sacred tradition is older than the New Testament, okay? When when the various books of the New Testament were written, the authors had some definite purpose, some definite audience in mind, right? St. Paul, for example, wrote to various communities of of Gentile converts that he had, you know, in his absence uh, to remind them of his teachings. St. Luke wrote his gospel. I mean, he addresses it to Theophilus, Which means lover of God, and uh, a lot of scripture scholars assume this is a citizen of Rome to whom whom he is introducing to the the Christ in the Gospel. Uh, Saint John's Gospel was written to combat early heresies during uh, which denied our Lord's divinity. Some of the very earliest heresies, heresies, pardon me, and so on. In fact, the canon of the Bible, right, the uh, definitive list of inspired books, wasn't decided. Until the end of the fourth century, at the councils of Hippo and Carthage in the years 393 and 397 AD, respectively. In any case, no book of the Bible was intended as a general catechetical instruction like the Didache, right, the teaching of the 12 apostles. The, the Bible isn't a start your own religion in 10 easy lessons, it's a, it's a, it's a library of books that were collected together to be preserved. Right? That's exactly what tradition is, to take these, these things that are valuable and to preserve them, not only for today, but for the future. And, and the point is that any teaching not explicitly found in the Bible will be found in tradition. I'm talking about Catholic teaching. In the same way that uh, following the course of a river will eventually draw you to its source, uh, you know, or closer to the source in which it flows, we can likewise trace the historical sources of the teachings of the church to their source namely the apostles. Uh, Vatican II says scripture and apostolic tradition form one deposit of the word of God and all the magisterial decisions of the church flow from that single deposit. Divine tradition teaches us all the doctrines of the apostles uh, in accordance with the great commission of teaching all nations to observe all that Jesus commanded. Restoring tradition then to bring us full circle is not about returning to the past. It's about fulfilling the Great Commission today. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, just a few minutes left in this segment, and and then one more. So I want to spend the balance of our time uh, with a medieval mentality segment, because yesterday, May the 30th, was the feast day of a great saint of chivalry, St. Joan of Arc. And in honor of her feast, the Church Pop website put up one of those uh, lists, um, Nine Things to Know and Share About St. Joan of Arc, a Catholic heroine. And um, I'm using their list as a framework on which to hang some of the historical facts about uh, Joan of Arc that only a medievalist would know. Okay, so um, buckle up. According to Church Pop, the extraordinary life of St. Joan serves as a powerful witness to the power of faith and obedience to God's will. Her steadfast devotion to her Catholic faith, her resolve to fulfill her divine mission, and ultimate sacrifice embody the essence of a true Catholic hero. And I agree. Today, of course, she's venerated as a saint by the Church and a source of inspiration for people around the world, even non-Catholics, as a reminder that uh, God can work through the most unlikely of vessels to accomplish great things. Now, uh, in their list, they begin with, number one, she was a French peasant, born in the year 1412 in the little village of Domremy in the province of Lorraine. And she began her campaign to restore the rightful king to the throne of France when she was just 17 years old. Number two, Joan of Arc was not a knight, obviously. Uh, She was not a trained soldier. She couldn't read or write. She didn't even know how to wield a sword before she began her mission. But when she met Charles VII, the Dauphin of France, whom God would see crowned as king, she said to him, Je m'appelle Jean La Pucelle," meaning my name is Joan the Maid. Pucelle was a f- medieval French word for virgin. And it's interesting to note that it fell out of use after her death uh, and survives only in reference to her and in the English word puzzle. Now, it's, it's significant that many prophecies from diverse sources uh, back at the time, these were abroad in Joan's own day, about this um, maiden who was going to save France. And the early of them was the so-called prophecy of Merlin, that a marvelous maid would come from the Bois Chenu, the ancient wood, to save France. And this prophetic figure was generally known as as the Maid of Lorraine. So you can see how nicely that fit with uh, Joan of Arc. Now, uh, she reportedly started hearing the voices of Saint. Michael the Archangel, Saint. Margaret of Antioch, and Saint. Catherine of Alexandria uh, when she was a little girl uh, at a young age. she started hearing the voices when she would visit the little village church there at Domremy. Uh, at first, the messages were personal and uh, of a more you know general nature, but when she was thirteen years old, she actually had visions of Saint Michael, Saint Catholic, St Catherine, and Saint Margaret in her father's garden, each of whom told her. To drive the English from French territory. And also that she would bring the Dauphin to Reims for his coronation as king. And we'll talk about what happened next when we return. To lots more no nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about St. Joan of Arc and uh, how she began her mission to uh, restore the rightful king of France and put an end to the Hundred Years' War with England. And when she first arrived at the royal court, the Dauphin, Charles VII, uh, wanted to put her to the test. And so he disguised himself as a courtier and had a member of his court impersonate him, sit on the throne. Uh, But Joan saw through the deception at once and then convinced Charles to meet with her privately, and given the opportunity, she won his trust. Now, the young Dauphin knew that others would be put off by this, and uh, to avoid criticism, he arranged for Joan to be investigated by the church. So uh, there was a theological examination at Poitiers, and Joan's uh, to verify her claims, the commission, quote, declared her to be of irrepressible Approachable life, a good Christian, possessed of the virtues of humility, honesty, and simplicity. But rather than declaring uh, that Joan was acting on the basis of divine inspiration, uh, they told the Dauphin that there was a quote favorable presumption on the divine nature of her mission. So uh, back then, just like today, uh, the approval of private revelations doesn't take the the form of of an outright endorsement but just declares that the visionary is sincere and not a deceiver and that the message is free from errors and faith and morals. And they also found that Joan would be justified in wearing armor on the battlefield and dressing as a page boy when traveling through enemy territory. Now, the reason for this kind of dispensation is that cross-dressing was uh, forbidden, right? It was considered a heresy to impersonate someone of the opposite sex, which is just one more reason why I'm a medievalist, because there was no drag queen story hour (laughs) back in the day. Also, when Joan was not in the field, she reverted to wearing women's clothes. In fact, later on during her trial by the English, uh, she was charged with an additional count of heresy because she returned to wearing men's clothes during her time in prison. But that was only after an English nobleman had attempted to force himself on her. And even her inquisitor ultimately found that Joan was justified wearing armor on the battlefield and dressing as a pageboy when traveling, uh, that she was likewise justified wearing men's clothing in prison to safeguard her virtue. So uh, Joan, you know, when, when she was in the field, she encouraged the soldiers to uh, receive confession and communion. Um, she did tell the, uh, her inquisitors when, when she had been arrested that she was not in command of the armies, that she only advised that the armies were under the command of the uh, you know, various French nobles and that uh, she didn't um, actually engage in battle but only uh, rode into battle carrying her banner, a banner which she herself, you know, and the thing, her arrest and trial is really just a great source of contemporary uh, accounts because, you know, the, the trial the, was all written out. And so they talked about the banner that she carried and she herself described it as a field of white uh, with uh, gold, lilies, the French fleur-de-lis. In the center, there's an image of uh, Christ Salvatore Mundi, Christ the Salvation of the World, flanked by a pair of angels. And above that image, the words Jesus and Maria. Uh, Jesus and Maria, she says, they tell me that that's what the words are because, of course, she couldn't read or write. Um, and it's interesting to note, it wasn't flown horizontally like a, like a battle flag or a pennant, but actually vertically like the kind of banner that you would carry in a religious procession. Uh, <clears throat> Joan, of course, a, uh, uh, considered a heroine of the Hundred Years' of War. And like I mentioned, it's so well-documented. So many um, saints of the Middle Ages and earlier, it's really, you really have to dig to find reliable facts or, or contemporary accounts. But Joan is just the opposite. It's like there are so many uh, contemporary accounts, both secular and religious, that you almost don't know where to start. Anyway, after she had won some key victories, uh, Charles was crowned King of France at the Cathedral in, in Reims, or Rion, uh, with Joan at his side. And she and her family were ennobled, and there followed a short truce with England, uh, but that unfortunately was quickly broken. And then when Joan traveled to raise the siege at Compiegne, she was captured by Burgundian troops and held for ransom. She also prophesied, by the way, that her time was short and she knew that her, you know, martyrdom was uh, coming. There were attempts to free her. Uh, She made herself made several escape attempts, including jumping out of the tower into the moat, uh, you know, but all to no avail. And eventually she was sold to the English for 10,000 pieces of gold. Hence, and this is number six on the church pop list, she was burnt at the stake in 1431 after a corrupt church trial found her guilty of heresy. The church later nullified the trial. And this is all true. Um, her trial violated the legal process uh, of the time. The verdict was later overturned. And there were many irregularities, such as the lack of balance of you know, French and English bishops that were sitting in judgment. Um, she was uh, tried by a church court. It was an ecclesiastical trial. Right? She wasn't tried for war crimes. She was being tried for, for heresy and witchcraft. But <clears throat> she was being illegally held in a secular prison guarded by English soldiers instead of being in in, uh, ecclesial custody and guarded by nuns, as would have been the proper uh, inquisitorial procedure. Uh, The records of her trial include statements from eyewitnesses who later claimed that Joan, an illiterate peasant, astonished the court with her ability to neatly escape the clever theological traps set by her inquisitors. The most well-known exchange was when Joan was asked if she knew whether she was in God's grace. Now, this question is the very kind of uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't question that the Pharisees used to try and trap our good Lord. Uh, According to the church doctrine, no one could be certain of being in God's grace. So if she answered yes, they could charge her with heresy. But if she answered no, they would say, oh, you're admitting your guilt. So what happened? Well, to the question, are you in God's grace? Her famous answer was, if I am not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God so keep me. I love the, the, the common sense of Joan of Arc. is awesome. And the notary who wrote all of this down later testified, at, you know, at her uh, um, rehabilitation. She said, those who were interrogating her were stupefied. However... When all was said and done, and despite the lack of incriminating evidence, Joan was condemned and sentenced to burn at the stake as a heretic. They they produced uh, an alleged confession uh, that was signed by Joan of Arc. But, of course, we know that she could neither read nor write. So uh, that was pretty fishy. Now, eyewitness accounts of her execution, May the 30th, and that's hence her feast day, in 1431, describe how she asked a priest, to hold a crucifix where she could see it and how an English soldier actually fashioned a cross from wood and gave it to her and was put in uh, the front of her dress. Then after her immolation, uh, the English raked the coals in order to expose her body so that no one could spread, you know, the rumor that she had maybe escaped alive. And then they they re-burned her remains and then burned them a, a third time to be sure that it was all reduced to ashes because they didn't want anybody uh, trying to make off with a relic. And then the ashes were taken and thrown into the River Seine. Now, the English uh, executioner, Shafuath Thirage, said to the, well, he was the first one to declare, we have burned a saint. And later he testified that he greatly feared to be damned because of the part that he played in her unjust execution. And, and you know, these these many quotes that I've shared from her posthumous retrial they came from her posthumous retrial which was opened uh, following the end of the war. It was actually requested by the Inquisitor General uh, Jean Brehal and Joan's own mother, Isabel. Pope Calixtus III authorized the proceeding which was meant to determine whether or not her condemnation had been justly arrived at. And at the end of the investigation in November 1455 she uh, they made a formal appeal for her rehabilitation, and then on July 7, 1456, 25 years after her unjust execution, when she was unjustly burned at the stake, the appellate court uh, declared that Joan was, in fact, innocent. Now, the first to declare Joan a saint was the man who executed her. Uh, the church would not follow suit for se- uh, well several centuries, and but finally, after 500 years... Uh, and this is number 7 on their list pope benedict the 15th declared joan of arc a saint in 1920 she is the patroness of soldiers and the patroness of france as you might imagine she's mentioned by william shakespeare and no less than mark twain wrote a book about her heroic life and it's it's interesting for twain he was uh, he was a cynic and uh, not enamored of the middle ages but he fell in love with joan of arc and it's hard not to um Today, St. Joan continues as a guiding light for Catholics. She is an encouragement to trust in God's plan and to fearlessly live out our own faith. And on the Church Pop website, there is a prayer to St. Joan of Arc in times of trouble. And these are most certainly such times. So I'd like to share that with you now, if we may. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In this, my time of need, I beg you to come to my aid. I humbly ask you to help me bear my trials with honor as I remember you in your earthly agonies. Blessed Joan, duty bound to God, give me courage. You who left family and friends to enter into God's service, devout and valiant to uphold righteousness to the end while being insulted and harmed by your enemies. Holy Joan, daughter of God, give me fortitude. Help me to prevail in life and death over evil while bearing my injuries with the dignity you showed when wounded in the breast, head, thigh, and heel. Pious Joan, help me to be fearless. Abandoned by the king you yourself had crowned, captured, and sold to the highest bidder, you put your trust in the king of heaven to deliver you. Venerable Joan, help me to be unwavering in my faith. Beaten, bruised, questioned, and accused, you were denied that which you loved most, communion, confession, mass, and public prayer. Heroic Joan, help me to uphold justice. Imprisoned, neglected, threatened, and condemned. Sentenced to die as a heretic, the cruelest death. To die by the fire and be raised in heaven. Glorious Virgin, please intercede for me. And here's where you mention your request, and here's mine. That I will have all the strength of soul and body necessary to do everything in my power for the restoration of the church if it be for the greater glory of God and the salvation of my soul. Hear this petition and my heartfelt plea. Pray for me in this my time of need, for I believe God will deny you nothing. Amen. St. Joan, Maid of Lorraine, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us yet again. I hope to do it all again, same time, same channel next week. Don't forget, coming up on the 17th of this month, we have our annual men's conference, the original Sons of Thunder, Jesse and Johnny Romero together again, giving inspiring power preaching and evangelization. Also, if you're local, every first Saturday, we have a uh, First Saturday Devotions and Potluck uh, dinner here at Sacred Heart Chapel in Covino. So you can check all of that out at bmpr.org. Register for the conference now. Come and join us for First Saturday if you can, and in the meantime, thank you so very much for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family. From everybody at Virgin Most Powerful Radio, I'm Matthew Arnold saying thanks again, and we'll see you next time.